morning. Welcome to the Lunch Break Bible Study. 20 minutes so that we can get you in the Word and get you on your way. 20 minutes so that you can study the Scriptures today, even if the only time you have is your lunch break. I'm Pastor Frank here in Kansas City. Last episode, we talked about Jesus healing the daughter of Jairus and the woman with the hemorrhage. And I left something out of that discussion. One of the things that I feel like are really the most important part of that, the woman who touched Jesus had been suffering for 12 years, and she had given everything she had, and Jesus waited. You know, God waited 12 years until she came into contact with Jesus. It's not as if God didn't know that she was suffering, but for 12 years she suffered, and then Jesus healed her. On the other hand, you had a little girl who did not get her healing until after she died. And I think that's important for us to remember that when we suffer illnesses of of our bodies and, and injuries and we ask the Lord to heal us, but what I want to remind you of is that it doesn't matter if you are healed today or you are healed in 12 years of suffering or even if you don't get your healing until after you've died and then you come into contact with Jesus. He will heal you. That is a promise that he has made. So I hope that that gives you some courage and some and some hope as you uh, deal with the with the maladies and the infirmer, infirmities of life. Um, but we are moving on now to chapter six of Mark's gospel. Uh, Jesus has left there and goes to his hometown, accompanied with with the disciples. Now he's probably referring. Mark is probably referring to Nazareth. Remember, Jesus had begun his ministry around Capernaum. He was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, and had begun his ministry in Capernaum. But he's now going back to probably the synagogue in Nazareth. And when the Sabbath came, he goes to the synagogue like, like a rabbi. And But the people here, again, were amazed. Now, this is the same word as in Mark 1, verse 22, where Jesus goes to a synagogue and casts out demons. And you can look at their reactions back in chapter 1, verses 21 to 28. They are amazed by Jesus' teaching and uh, a teaching with authority, followed by questioning, and then followed immediately by uh, commenting on Jesus' miraculous power. And this, uh, this passage is going to be no different, except this is in his hometown. So you're going to have the same structure where people are amazed, and then they question, and then they comment his, about his powers, but things are going to go differently here in his hometown. So they're amazed by his teaching, and then this question comes up, where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And just as there were two reactions to people who were afraid in the presence of Jesus, there are two reactions to people being amazed at the teaching of Jesus. So if you remember when people are afraid in Jesus' presence, there's kind of two ways that they're afraid. Um, They're either afraid like the disciples are afraid in the sense of they are awestruck and uh, in the sense of uh, reverence as in the fear of the Lord. Or you have people who are afraid of Jesus just because they're terrified, and that's the Gerasenes. Remember when Jesus casts the, uh, the, the, the legion out of the Gerasene demoniac, the people were literally just afraid of Jesus, and they wanted him to leave. They didn't want anything to do with him. So just like you had people with two different ways of being afraid of Jesus, both reverently and in terror, 
right? You also have two different ways of being amazed at Jesus's teaching. The people of Capernaum, where Jesus first amazed people in the synagogue, what happens to them? Well, they all come out later that night so that Jesus can heal the sick and, and cast out demons. They are amazed and they are excited by this. It's amazing to them. This is wonderful. This is fantastic. But here in his hometown, there's a different sort of amazement. It's amazing that he talks like this. Who does he think he is? Where does he think he's, who does he think he's talking to? We're his family. We're his friends. It seems very strange, but they reject him and they'll have nothing to do with him. To this, Jesus replies to them, you know, only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house, do people not honor a prophet. The last time the question of Jesus' family came up was in chapter 3. People were saying that he was in league with Satan, casting out demons by demonic power. And Jesus replied with talking about the inconsistency of that argument. Well, how can Satan cast out Satan? That doesn't really make sense. And saying that a house divided itself, it, it just can't stand. And when I talked about that, I suspected that Jesus was talking more than about just what they were saying, that about their particular argument and the logical uh, inconsistency there. Right? He was talking about not just their argument, but the house of Israel, and how the house of Israel could not stand if it was divided about him. Here again, Jesus is rejected, just like he was rejected there, and his family, you know, we're talking about his relatives and his family, they're in view here, and he notes that he's not honored in his own house. And I believe when you look at these two things together, it, I think it lends some more credence to that, to that idea I had earlier, that Jesus is warning the whole house of Israel that they have to stand with him. Verse 5. He could not do any miracles there. The people had rejected him. The people had said, you know, who does this guy think he is? He couldn't do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. This is another one of those puzzles that Mark throws into his gospel because we're not used to seeing something like this. It says Jesus could not do any miracles there. And, and for us, that's hard to understand. What do you mean he could not do anything? And if this is tied to the idea that the house of Israel is divided against Jesus, and there he could not do anything powerful except these few things for a few people, I think it one of these things that Mark uses to sort of foreshadow what's coming, that the house of Israel really would be divided against Jesus, and a few people would follow him, but the majority would not. Verse 6, and now it's Jesus' turn. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. And then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. So everyone was shocked and amazed at what, it, what Jesus was able to do, but his own people refused to believe. And it was his turn to be amazed at their lack of faith. Just as he had been shocked by the faith of the woman who touched the hem of his garment, and he had been amazed by her, now it was his turn to be amazed at the rejection he had received from his own people. So he goes from town to town and is preaching the gospel. And then in verse 7, he calls the twelve, he calls the disciples to himself, and he, and he sends them out two by two, and it says he gives them authority over evil spirits. Now, why two by two? And if you remember your Old Testament again, 
Everything is established not on the testimony of one, but on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So the idea that Jesus is sending these witnesses out two by two to give uh, give them an opportunity to support each other's discussion so that, so that when they come to town, they're more trustworthy because we have two witnesses who are saying what is happening with Jesus. And so now also he gives them what? Authority over evil spirits. So not only is he the one who the demons must obey by his words, but he also has the power to grant that authority to other people. So this is, this is sort of ratcheting up how powerful Jesus actually is in the estimation of, of the people who see him. That not merely can Jesus command evil spirits, but his disciples can do it too. He has the authority to give the authority away. Again, Jesus is no ordinary prophet. Jesus is something beyond anything that the, the Israelites have ever seen before. And in verse 8, he gives them some instructions. He tells them what to do. He says, don't take anything with you except a staff. He says, don't bring uh, uh, any bread, no food. Don't bring a- a- any clothing, no money. You know, wear, uh, you know, wear sandals, but don't bring an extra tunic with you. And whatever you enter a house, stay there until until you're until you're done with the town. Now why won't he send them supplies? If you tell those people go on a trip, okay, you're gonna need, you know, you're gonna need a, you're gonna need a, your clothing, you're gonna need some money, you're gonna need this, that, and the other thing, and and because you're gonna have to take care of yourself and we're gonna have to provide for you as you go from town to town. Uh, but the ancient world wasn't like that. In the ancient world, the idea of being hospitable to a traveler was important. And not only that, but the ancient world being hospitable to a traveling teacher, a traveling prophet, was even more important. And the idea that you would have a traveling prophet come to you and that you would provide for their needs meant that you believed and gave credence to what the prophet, what the person was saying. And that's just how it was in the ancient world. And I'm going to have to maybe help you understand this a little bit. I need you to think about your middle school or your high school years. Right, think about those years when who sat with who at the lunch table, you know? It was kind of important. You sat with your friends. And if, if somebody who was not part of your group of friends just came over and sat next to you, that would be very strange. And your reaction to that might be, um, anything from just ignoring the person or even sometimes being openly hostile to this interloper who just showed up at your at your place and just started spending time with you and, and demanding your company. But the ancient world placed that kind of importance on eating arrangements in the home. The regular practice of hospitality to teachers included a sense of belonging to one another. And so that's the scandal that you'll see with Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. The tax collectors receive Jesus and showing they believe his message, and he enters their house showing he believed their worthiness to hear his message. Right, So you could see how when Jesus sends the disciples out, he's not just sending them out to do things, he's sending them out to be received. And you're looking for people who will receive, who will hear what the Spirit has to say. And verse 11, he says, If any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. So your worthiness for this message of the kingdom is entirely based on whether you accept or reject the message. Jesus doesn't say go into the, go into the town and find the most upstanding people you can find. 
Go into the town and find the ruler of the synagogue. Go into town and find the elders of the people. Go into the town and find the most righteous people you can find and stay with them. No. You can go into a town and it'll have righteous people and upright people, but people that reject the message and will not receive the messengers. And when that happens, if that happens, you just go shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. So in verse 12, after this, the disciples go out and preach that people should repent. And they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So you have the disciples basically doing Jesus' ministry, preaching repentance and belief in the kingdom of God and healing the sick and casting out demons. Verse 14, King Herod hears about this because Jesus' name had become well known. And some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And that's why these miraculous powers are, are, are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah. And this, this sounds very familiar because at other times Jesus asked his disciples, what were the people saying? And some would say this. And then others were claiming that he is a prophet like one of the prophets long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, he's referring to John the baptizer here. He says, John, the man I beheaded has been raised from the dead. So I think we can ask ourselves, what is the significance of this? Why, what is Herod thinking? Why is he so concerned that John the baptizer has been raised from the dead? Why does that trouble him? In verse 17 in Mark's gospel, we're going to find out. Remember, Mark had mentioned that, that John was in prison earlier in the gospel. But now in verse 17, he's explaining what, what had happened. For Herod himself, it says, had given orders to, uh, for John to be arrested. And he had him put in prison. He did this because of Herodias. So Herod had a brother named Philip. So remember, this is this is not Herod the Great, who was the who was the the king of the region when Jesus was born. This is Herod Jr. When Herod the Great had finally died, he split his kingdom up, and his sons got pieces of it. And one of the sons' name is Philip. And the other one is is Herod also. I, I always call him Herod Jr. because that just helps me keep him straight in my head. So uh, Herod had convinced Philip's wife to divorce her husband and to marry him instead. Now, her name was Herodias. And he had convinced her to do that. And that was probably, probably political. Um, probably Herod trying to increase his status in the region. Um, by by a political uh, an advantage, advantageous political marriage probably is what's going on there, but John had been saying to Herod, you know that, that's that's not lawful. That's that is against the will and the word of God to do that. So Herod locked him up. Herod put John in prison. He was just he didn't want to hear it. Herodias, the wife, right, who had divorced Philip and married Herod, she nursed a grudge against John and she wanted to kill him, but. But Herod was afraid of John and protected him because he thought he was a righteous and holy man. So when Herod would listen to John, he, would be, he, he wouldn't quite understand what John was saying here. And it says in verse 20, it says he's greatly puzzled, but he liked listening to John. He felt like John was important and he had some interesting things to say. So one of the things that, you know, this is a complete sidebar, not necessary to the story, but, but I, I talk about this episode quite a bit. And the reason I do, I, well, I have two reasons for talking about uh, John's testimony to Herod about what he's done. Was number one, to show that the church of God in Jesus Christ has always, 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 always from its very beginning, and with the blessing of God, has stood up to rulers regarding the lawfulness of God's institution of marriage. 
right? The the very idea that the church is just going to roll over on 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 questions about marriage and and these sorts of things that the church is just going to roll over and say, well, you know, this is the law of the land, and you know, we're just going to accept it and we're going to do whatever. That doesn't really take into account the witness of the scriptures and how the church over time has has stood up to to leaders in, in this regard. Even even in the midst of the ridiculousness of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and uh, and all of the problems in the in the Western Church, there was a, a, a there was the idea that Henry VIII wanted a divorce. And the church just would not grant it to him, you know, because they just stood up to the rulership and said, no, even in the midst of all of the problems the Western church was having at this time, they just basically told Henry VIII, you can't just divorce your wife because you feel like it. There is a question of God's law here that you must, you are compelled to obey. And, uh, and that cost, that cost a lot to the people who finally did stand up to him. And it caused a great schism in the church and all sorts of problems down the line for people who uh for people who who believed in you know who believed that the church was right in that in that case and and they got into a lot of trouble with and some of them lost their lives um so that's the first thing to show that the church has always been and will always be standing up to the rulership of the world on these issues it's not going away and neither is the church and the second thing is to show that things uh really are not they haven't gone as bad as they have in the past so far, the church, the Western church, we are not being locked up in prison. We are not under threat of execution. Um, so it's not as bad as it's been in the past when we stand up to the rulers of this world. So we have kind of, I, I just say this because I want you to kind of take courage and take heart. The world may be seeming to go in one direction, but the church is going to stand firm on what she holds to be true. And 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 if your church is is sort of weak kneed about this, and they and they don't want to stand up to the uh, to the to the to the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune in the world, here's what I here's what I tell you: point to this point to this thing. You point to John the Baptizer as a as an example of somebody who stood up to the world, and he lost his life over it. Right? He lost his life over it, but he stood firm, and he was the Lord's servant until the very end. So Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. Here we are in um, verse 21. Finally, an opportunity came. Herod had given a banquet for the mucky mucks of his kingdom, his generals and all these other people. And then the daughter of Herodias. So this is Herod's niece, his stepdaughter and his niece, right? So, you know, this you can imagine this family tree. So uh, she came in and she danced. And it says it pleased Herod and his dinner guests. Probably, you know, I, I have no idea what the dancing involves. She's not in a ballerina tutu, you know, doing Swan Lake out there. Probably some sort of uh, highly sexualized, erotic sort of thing that she's doing. Um, the king said to the girl, uh, ask me for anything you want. I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath. And this is so strange. And this is, um, this is sort of, Herod being exposed, one who thinks he's wise by making these sort of political arrangements and having this political marriage so that he's kind of increasing his status in the world. Somebody who thinks he's wise makes a completely ridiculous and foolish oath. He says, whatever you ask, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. Or you can imagine, so if this was in like a modern movie or something, he's talking and all of a sudden you hear like a record scratch and the music stop and everybody sort of look at each other like, what is he doing? 
Um, so she went out and she calls her mom. She, she asks, what, what should I ask for? And the mom says, the head of John the baptizer. Because Herodias, remember, she is the one who divorced Philip. She is the one who married Herod. She has, in her own mind, the she has this sort of power grab, this sort of uh, grasping after power and control, that the same way that Herod is. They're of like minds, these two people. And she knows that John the Baptizer, as someone who is openly preaching against her marriage to Herod, is dangerous. Because the people will listen and they won't follow Herod. And that's important to have the support of the people. So she wants her power. She wants her authority in this, in this region. She wants it solidified. So she wants John the Baptist dead. She says, I want the head of John the Baptist. And once girl, at once the girl goes into the king and she says, I want you to give me right now the head of John on a platter. Now Herod was really troubled by this because, uh, well, this is not exactly, and this is a total buzzkill. This is, you know, the kind of thing that brings a party to the end, to its end here very quickly. Um, he was greatly distressed, but because he had sworn an oath, right, and he didn't want to be embarrassed in front of his dinner guests, he didn't want to refuse her. So he sent the executioner with orders to bring John's head, and the man went, and he came back, and John's head was on a platter, and he gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And hearing this, the, the apostles came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Now, this also um, foreshadows the death of Jesus. So, I, I, you know, there's a loose, there's sort of a loose connection here, but, but they're connections nonetheless. So, what do you have going on in this episode that reminds us of and, and sort of points forward as to what's going to happen with Jesus later? All right, number one, the ruler believes that the man under judgment is a righteous and holy man. That's absolutely true for Herod, and it's going to be absolutely true for Pontius Pilate. Both of them believed that the men who had been arrested and were under their judgment were righteous men. Second, the ruler is under pressure from the crowd. So Herod has got his dinner guests there. He can't go back on his word because he doesn't want to lose face in front of these important people. Right, Same thing is going to go on in Pontius Pilate. He's going to be confronted with a very different crowd, but a crowd that is pressuring him nonetheless to execute this judgment, to have this righteous man murdered. Third, the ruler orders the death and publicly displays the body. So in this case with John the baptizer, he orders John's death and has his head brought in and, 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 and presented uh, to the mother. Pontius Pilate is going to order Jesus dead, and he's going to order him crucified on a cross. And then the fourth thing is the disciples come and lay the body in the tomb, which happens with Jesus. And connecting these two ideas, the context of this is that Herod thinks that Jesus is John the baptizer raised from the dead. John the baptizer has not yet been raised from the dead. He will be raised when all of us are raised at the end of days when Jesus returns. But Jesus will be raised. When Jesus is executed, he will rise again on the third day. And now we are in verse 30, and I think we are about at the end of our time together. Yeah, um, so we're going to stop right here. I want to say thank you to uh, everyone for being so patient, me getting these out as quickly as I can, and I hope you have a blessed day. <laughs>